Hey guys, this is John. And Austin. And this is another episode of the Meat Logistics Podcast. We're going to cut here in a second to an interview I just did with Jake from Berkshire Agricultural Ventures. Um, and we'll be right back. All right, we've got a guest with us today. We've got Jake Levine from Berkshire Agricultural Ventures. Now, this is an organization we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and I said that we reached out. They were gracious enough to be on our podcast with us, so we've got them remotely. Um, the Meatistics podcast does not yet have the uh, wherewithal to fly people down here and meet with us, so we're doing it all remotely. Jake, thanks for being with us. Um, when we initially found your organization, it was through an article talking about how you guys work with farmers, trying to get them not only resources such as money, but also information. Can you talk a little bit about what clued you in that that was needed in your industry? Uh, that, that's a great question. So, um, yeah, so Berkshire Agricultural Ventures in general works uh, with farmers and uh, business owners who have businesses you know, agribusinesses. Um, and generally we offer financial and technical support, uh, you know, information, guidance, et cetera. Um, and uh, the, the organization was founded not that long ago uh, in 2016 because we he were hearing from, from farmers and, and agribusiness owners that they needed extra support, that uh, the kinds of support that a lot of traditional businesses get through various uh, avenues, whether it's like small business association or chambers of commerce, um, et cetera, just those, those resources don't really exist for a lot of farmers and agribusinesses. Um, and we, the organization, the organization has seen a lot of uh, need and, you know, we have uh, new client intake all the time. Um, but more specifically for the work I do, I, I'm the manager of the local meat processing support program. The idea for that was was uh, came from my colleague Dan Carr, who's a livestock farmer and also was a plant manager for a USDA inspected poultry processor. Um, and so he he came to the staff at Berkshire Agricultural Ventures. This is long before I, I came a part of the team. And said, you know, he spoke both as a meat processor and as a livestock uh, farmer that there's a lot of need specifically for processing support that that um, livestock farmers in our region just as is true throughout uh, throughout America really uh, have a lot of uh, hurdles and, and uh, one of the biggest pain points is just the lack of capacity the you know throughput at processors I know around here most processors are backed up a, a year you know are booking out a year two years out and I, that's true ev everywhere from what I hear and you know yep and uh, so Dan suggested to, to Berkshire Ag Ventures that uh, they put a little extra effort and muscle behind looking into this problem. Um, so uh, Berkshire Ag Ventures re reached out to kitchen table consulting consultants um, and asked them to do a study of, of, the, of the region to see where the needs were, what back Berkshire Agricultural Ventures could do to help improve systems in this region. Um, they released that report um, and uh, some of their big findings were that we have a lot of processors. Uh, you know, we, we're fairly lucky in terms of the infrastructure that already exists there, but that there's a lot more that those processors could be doing with a little extra support from Berkshire Agricultural Ventures or an organization like us, whether that's, you know, a little extra working capital through a low interest loan or taking the time to work with someone who has real expertise in like bookkeeping management or HR management or just 
operations and systems in general. Um, on top of that, there we saw a need for more cotton wrap facilities in the area to help alleviate the existing slaughterhouses. You know, when when we talk to a lot of uh, processors in this region. And this again, this is true everywhere. The, the the problem isn't the kills, the problem is just the further processing and the value-added production. That's where things really get backed up. So if we could have more opportunities for that kind of production, that would be, be really helpful. Um, and so we started this work uh, about a year and a half ago, and it's been nonstop since. Uh, Dan was right. There was a real need for for this kind of support. My background is as a as a meat processor, as a butcher. I I was a USDA plant uh, manager for two different small value-added production facilities in the region. And before that, uh, did a lot of whole animal retail butchery. Um, and I grew up in this in this area, in this region. So it was really exciting for me to have the opportunity to do this kind of work um, and, and work with the various meat processors and livestock farmers that I've been working with for, for over a decade. Yeah, and it, obviously your previous experience gave you uh, insight into it. Uh, the USDA process can be a little bit more stringent um, than certainly custom inspected plant or custom plants. Uh, do you face any struggles with that, trying to get these smaller plants up to the level of what you'd like to see? That, that's a great question. You know, while we, we have put extra emphasis on working with USDA inspected processors, we, we also are supporting custom exempt processors because there is a real need for custom exempt processing. And, and um, you know, the, it's an important part of the whole uh, meat value chain in, in this region. You know, there are a lot of farmers who, or homesteaders who just raise a couple of animals a year and mostly for themselves. And so custom processing is a perfect uh, avenue for them. Uh, but, you know, to, to answer your question, it, it, it's tough, but, you know, we've been lucky the last few years because of the USDA has been really thoughtful and strategic in terms of some of these new grant programs for meat processing. And one of the most valuable ones is the MPERG, the Meat and Poultry Inspection Readiness Grant. Um, unfortunately, from what we understand, that those are going to be over, but there were two rounds of those. And we've worked with several processors who, by applying to the, the Meat and Poultry Inspection Readiness Grant and being awarded it, that gave them the working capital they needed to make those improvements to go under USDA, USDA um, inspection. On top of that, Berkshire Agricultural Ventures hires food safety consultants to work with the processors to do that, to make sure that the HACCPs are up to up to snuff, that, that uh, you know, all the, um, the surfaces uh, are exactly what the USDA would need. So we, we really are Put a lot of effort behind making sure that those processors uh, get get to the place where they can get a grant of inspection and, and maintain that. Um, in fact, uh, one of the first processors I started working with when I got when I started this job, uh, we helped him apply for an MPERG, and he was awarded that last year. And in 12 days, he will be going under USDA inspection. We're very proud of that. Yeah, that's got to feel good to help somebody get up to that level. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I really see coming in the, the food industry, particularly probably more the meat industry is more locally sourced, uh, food. I think it helps with a few issues people a have with the meat industry, but I also think it's better for the environment. I think we're going to start seeing more, uh, regenerative farming, more local farming. A lot of the meat that you're 
helping with here. Is that staying somewhat in the Berkshire areas or some of it, I know you said was value added. So is that going out all over the country? Yeah, that's a great question. I, almost all, if not all currently that of the farmers and processors we're working with are really keeping things within the region or the food shed. So uh, Berkshire Agricultural Ventures is based in Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires. Um, and our service area includes Western Massachusetts, uh, Northwestern Connecticut, and um, the, the Hudson Valley of New York, uh, which really is a, a larger sort of food shed and agricultural community. Of, you know, when you put those three states and four counties together, um, and, uh, the, the, uh, majority, if not all the, the farmers, the, that product is staying within this food shed. So, you know, some of that might be going into New York city or Boston, um, or, you know, into the capital region in New York, but it, it's really within uh, a couple hundred miles for the most part. Uh, you know, there, there's a real need in terms of value added production. There's a real need for more infrastructure, more opportunities to create, uh, USDA inspected value added products. Um, we just, you know, the pro there are processors in this region who have really great value-added product uh, lines, but it, it's, you know, still your your sort of classic things like smoked, uh, you know, bacon's uh, smoked sausages, fresh sausages, maybe some meat sticks. Um, but you know, when we talk to both uh, entrepreneurs who are interested in in entering the meat value chain, but also livestock farmers, there's a real need for. Uh, production for rendered fat. Um, broth is a huge one, you know, especially to be able to utilize things like bones, skin, uh, chicken feed or, or trotters, et cetera. Um, also like pet, pet food and pet treats, dehydrating organ meat, et cetera. And those opportunities don't exist. I could imagine if those, if we're able to help develop and foster those sort of opportunities that we, we might see some of that product leave our region. But our focus at Berkshire Agricultural Ventures is really on the local food economy and local food systems. And that's where most of the farmers we're working with are, are where they're interested is as well. Yeah, I've been up into the Berkshire. So I grew up in the Northeast. I've been up there many times. Unbelievably pretty area of the country. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm down in Kansas right now. It's it's not the same. <laughs> it is not the same. I was just back up in not the Berkshires, but the Adirondacks this past weekend. And man, do I miss how green and the beautiful forests and the mountains. Um, it's a special place. I always try to tell people, I'm like, you probably have the wrong idea of what the Northeast looks <laughs> like. Like you're probably seeing a bunch of like New York City, right, Boston. Right. I'm like, you got to get out of that. One of my favorite places in the world to spend time is uh, New Hampshire mm -hmm. and Maine. I mean, talk about just wilderness. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so you guys gave out nine hundred thousand dollars in loans. Can is there one either? upgrade or pieces of equipment uh, that you find that the majority or a plurality of that amount is going towards? Uh, so just to uh, back up for a second. So as an organization, sure. we've given, and uh, my colleague, Shannon Smith, who's the director of lending and finance, I, I, she'll be listening to this shouting at me because I won't get the number exact, but we've given, I think, over a million and a half dollars over the last uh, six years to, uh, in loans, low interest loans to oh, people across okay. the, the uh, local food systems. Uh, the, the press release that, that you guys read that, um, that, that connected us was we, the, here within the local meat processing program that, that I manage, 
we won a grant from the USDA to establish a revolving loan fund just for meat processors. And that revolving loan fund will be $840,000. So the grant from the USDA was for $630,000. And then we were able to raise a match from our community members for $210,000. So we're, we're, yeah, we're really excited about it. It's going to do a ton. We have not yet deployed loans from that specific loan fund yet. We're still uh, working with the USDA to just sort of uh, create the the mechanics for that loan fund. But um, we have some people in the pipeline that we're really excited about, and we can't wait to deploy loans to them. Uh, so one of the ones I'm most excited about is uh, we've been working with a meat processor, a red meat processor in Litchfield County in Connecticut. Um, she opened her doors in 2017. She's been a meat cutter for her whole life um, and, and decided she wanted to open up her own facility. Uh, and um, we've been working really closely with her for the last 18 months, uh, providing her with all kinds of technical assistance. Um, and uh, and the, a big sort of takeaway from, from the work we've been doing with her and, and her long-term goals for the business is to add a smokehouse. So currently she sends all her bellies and uh, sausages that need to be smoked out to a third party that creates lots of different problems for her. Uh, recently that the, the, uh, smokehouse she was working with went through new ownership. So there's been quality issues, not to mention it just messes up her systems, right? Like she has a, a, a hog that she's processed and it's ready to go. It's all in boxes in the freezers. And then she doesn't know when she's going to get those bellies back from the processor. So that just stacks up and builds up in her, her freezer, creating all kinds of knock on issues. Um, so she's really excited to, to, to build out the smokehouse and, and with, with this loan, she's going to be able to do that and it's going to do wonders for her business and also for the livestock farmers she's servicing because she's going to have a superior product. Uh, because she's really thoughtful and careful about what she's making uh, and she's going to be able to smoke bellies. She's going to be able to make meat snack sticks for people. It's going to be fantastic. So that's one I'm, I get really excited about when I think about it. Yeah, I don't get a chance to do it much anymore, but when I started here at Walton's, I was in our customer service department, and I would talk to commercial customers um, and some new builds, and the one thing we would always try to get them to spend more money on was their smoker. We always would tell them, there's no other piece of equipment in your facility that you will make money back on as quickly as that smoker, because once you've smoked this meat, you can sell it for a premium, and everything else, it might speed up. It might let you do more and better products, but you're not going to make your money back as quickly on it. So that that's interesting to hear. I'm, I'm glad that's not just a Walton's thing that everybody has kind of embraced that. Um, another thing is small batch bacon is just better yes, than large batch. I, I, I was lucky enough. We have a, a, a Hormel plant here and I was good friends with the plant manager. He brought me on a tour and it's impressive seeing all that stuff done at scale is amazing, but I will put a bacon that I've made here against anything they could ever make in that facility. And mine's going to be better every time. I totally agree with you. It's just the way things go. Um, okay. So also on the press release, I saw that, uh, 5,900 acres were preserved. Can you talk a little bit about how that gets involved in the, uh, do you guys call it BAV? Yes. I saw it yes. shortened a few times. Okay. We call it can you talk about BAV's involvement? Sure. I, I've okay. been trying to avoid acronyms because it can confuse people, <laughs> but it, it, my default is to call it BAV. Sure. So, uh, okay. you know, th- this is a little outside of my, my wheelhouse. I I'm really like meat focused. And so I, I don't want to, uh, 
miscommunicate anything. But a big part of what what we've done in terms of helping to secure land is is uh, provide low interest loans to farmers in order to purchase uh, land that otherwise would be un- unaffordable to them, or, or you know they they just wouldn't have the cash on hand to buy. You know, uh, you you were speaking earlier about. Um, how beautiful it is here. And it's true. We're really lucky. I, I'm so fortunate that I grew up here and can, can continue to live here and raise my family here. But uh, I'm, I'm able to be able to do that because my family was from here. And, and so there was land and there was a house. It was my grandmother's house. And I could buy that for my parents at a below market rate. But because we're the Berkshires and we're the Hudson Valley and we're Litchfield County, was huge second home owner community. I mean, during COVID, I think we saw some of the largest population growth in the whole country in this region. Uh, the The cost of land has always been a huge issue, uh, and it's probably the biggest issue facing life, you know, facing farmers in, in this region. Um, farmers are just getting priced out. There, there are bidding wars over, you know, land for for cash, and so. Um, it's one way that we can help is, and usually when, when we're helping to preserve land, it's us working with a bunch of other organizations, organizations like American Farmland Trust or Land for Good, partners like Berkshire Grown, the Community Land Trust here in the Berkshire, Berkshire County, et cetera. Because um, buying land is complicated. It's not just, doesn't take a lot of money, but it also takes a lot of legal know-how and um, understanding of zoning and stuff. So. So it, while it's not our expertise, it's something we're really committed to, and, and we have the financial uh, tools to help make that happen when we partner with other organizations. So, uh, yeah, I mean, w- without land, there is no farming. So, so. Yep. Yep. And without people, the next generation taking that over, there is no farming. Right. right. Um, one of the things that's always disapp- not disappointing because it's their life; they can do whatever they want with it. Um, but you hear stories of, you know, this farm has been in my family's or it's been my family's for generations. My kids don't want anything to do with it. So they end up selling to some conglomerate and that's just either going to be then changed into a subdevelopment or just become part of one of these huge, you know, farms that are just monocropping or, you know, it's just large, uh, herds of animals it it's loses a little bit of that uh what made it unique yeah. you know yep. that's really what i think uh and i've probably talked about it way too much um but i really do i i look at what's coming and the number of people who are self-selecting out of um uh, big agriculture out of factory farming um but these aren't people that don't want to eat meat anymore they just want that eat to be or meat to be Healthy yeah. and ethically raised. Yep. So small farms are the way to do that. I agree 100%. Yep. Well, um, looking at some of your uh, your uh, testimonials, yeah. um, the one that kind of stuck out to me as I was reading was the first one, um, that Skyview mm. Farms. They seemed, it seemed really interesting you help them through an entire nine month process. So this isn't something where you're just stepping in and handing out a loan and every once in a while going, Oh yeah, no, do this, do this. Um, are you walking these people through this hand the entire way? Is it kind of sounds like from reading this stuff? Yeah. What a great question. Yeah. I, I think that's at the heart of what makes what we do so effective and important is yes. Like you said, we, we, 
can write a low interest flexible loan you know so often our the loans we we um uh make are, are like at three percent at the most which is you know a, a, if you look at a similar organizations to ours like farm credit east or or um something like that it, they they sort of tend to be with the marketplace so seven nine percent so we're, we're really uh competitive that way um and really the only reason we charge interest is we need to be able to cover you know the, the staff that that manages those loans yeah. but um that we we offer really what we sort of call wraparound services so yeah we'll write you a loan but we will also hire a business plan writing writer to work with that farm to make sure they have a business plan that is sustainable and makes sense that they are doing financial projections that are looking two three five seven years out to make sure that what they want to do is doable and make sure they have a roadmap for doing that successfully um, we might hire someone to, to work with them to do marketing, to update their website or rebrand to make sure that when they are able to produce that dairy product or that meat line, that they're going to be able to sell it well and, and that it looks good on the shelf. Um, so like within the local meat processing support program, the cornerstone of, of what we're doing is the, the work, the technical assistance and the financial assistance we're offering existing processors. So I was, when you asked me about the loans and some of the projects I was excited about, I talked about the smokehouse. So that came out of 18 months of uh, various consultants that we've hired working with this processor on a weekly basis, meeting with her. You know, um, when, when you talk to her about how it went, she, she had QuickBooks and she was managing her business, but she hated it. And it took her hours every week <laughs> to do that. And she wasn't confident that she was doing it the right way or that she was making the right business decisions. 18 months later now, when you when you meet with her and talk to her about it, she laughs and she says, yeah, it's fun. And the whole all of it took me an hour this week. Um, and she's like, and now I can make decisions that I, that I feel good about and know I'm doing the right thing. Or if I have questions, I can very quickly look back into to my financial systems and, and say, oh, yeah, that's right. Or no, actually, I shouldn't do that now. I should wait. That that's amazing. Uh, I feel I'm so proud of that and and happy with that. So, yeah, it it it's useless if you give someone money without giving them that that other support and helping them guide guide through it. You know, far, farmers and meat processors are are similar in that it is some of the hardest work, and they're working all day every day. And at the end of the day, and often also have you know young families or other lines of work. At the end of the day. To ask them to work on their business when they're so busy working in their business, it's just unreasonable. And so for us to be able to give them the space and tools to be able to really work on their business strategically is, is huge. Uh, one of the things that surprised me about at least the meat processing industry down, uh, down here, we sell all over the country, um, but a lot of the people that at least I've met are more Midwestern based. A lot of the business owners, um, what surprises me constantly is how much they're willing to help each other out. They're not keeping secrets from each other. They're not saying, you know, trying to mislead somebody. It's a very helpful community. Do you have the same thing up there? Yeah, that's a cool question. I think we do. I mean, I was, so I, I was just visiting with a, a processor who, who I've worked with for years, who, who I love. Um, I'm helping him apply for uh, a grant, the, the local meat capacity grant from the USDA right now. And he was, we were walking around the kill floor and he was showing me 
and this is something he all does he designed and built himself back in the the 80s uh and hasn't hasn't seen a lot of uh um you know up upkeep since and he said listen right. you know this stuff's outdated it's not working the way it should and there's new equipment and i want a new uh scalder dehairer uh to put in here rather than this crazy old thing i'm using and he's like yeah i called up uh, X processor, who's, uh, you know, about a half hour, 45 minutes north of him and asked him if I could come see his and see how it works. And he said, yes. And so I think that's, yes, I think we all see it. We're in it together. We, we I mean, processors know that, that there, uh, that there's more demand than, than, than they can meet. And so, um, I think that helps everyone be in this together, right? Because, um, uh, there's nothing really to lose. It, it, I think it all, all ships rise. Right. Um, and that's certainly our attitude. Um, you know, I think there are some sometimes interesting sort of generational, uh, div divides is the wrong word, but like, um, shifts and stuff. And so the older generation, uh, it, it maybe approaches things slightly different than like the younger generation. So, uh, I'm working with a lot of processors who who are like my parents' age. You know, they're they're boomers. They're in their sixties, um, and they've often they they originally started with like a custom processor and then went USDA in the eighties or whatever, and um, and now their their children are starting to take over. And so when you talk to the older older processors about like Vista Track or some sort of new technology, you know, inventory tracking system. Um, or using social media, you get an eye roll or like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> but then you see the, the right. son or daughter in the background being like, yeah, I want, I want that. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> like I want to have uh, a printout that has a yield, yield report on it and it prints the weights and I can deliver that to the farmer. And I want to be able to post about that on social media. And I want to have a real website, not just a Facebook page. Yeah, it is amazing the number of still to this day new plants uh, that we see opening up that their only presence is a Facebook page. Yeah, at most. They have nothing. Yeah, right. And it's you're such a missed opportunity. It's not expensive to do. I mean, you can uh, use a Squarespace site for, what, $20 a month? Right. And it gives you so much more functionality. But I, I agree to a certain extent that it's a generational thing, but I also do think it's a little bit, I mean, you get to certain areas of Kansas and it's so rural that it's just not part of their mindset. Yeah, yeah. And you could talk all day about how this could, you know, bring you more customers. It could, you know, do all these things for you. And they're just not going to hear yeah. it. They're like, no, I hate the computer. I hate the phone. I'm not going to use it. Eh. And that's the way some people are. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're a really rural area and, and some of the processors are in towns that still don't have high-speed internet. So yep. point, point yep. well made. Do you have any uh, processors up there that also do wild game or are these all strictly uh, commercial style? Yeah, good, good question. Um, uh, the, so the processor I mentioned earlier, who I was so proud of, who, who will be going under USDA in, in 12 days, uh, uh, Deer processing is a huge part of his business. He's been a custom processor for years, and that's mostly what he did. Um, and he still plans on closing for a couple months during the year to just focus on deer because that's important to him. And that's how he, that's his roots. That's how he got started. You know, he could stay busy just doing USDA uh, pork and beef and lamb, but but he wants to continue to serve 
the deer hunters in his community. I mean, he talks about how he grew up with a single mom who hunted with him and his brothers every fall, and that's what they ate all year. And so it really like it's just who he is, and it's like a part part of him, and and it's a part of his story. So that that's important to him. Um, and then there there are other processors who like will let their employees do custom processing after USDA hours uh, as like a side gig, which I think is really cool and, and really generous. Um, and then, yeah, there are a bunch of custom processors in the region who, who de do deer. Um, but, you know, in, in New England, there's not a ton of wild game. It's, it's, it's mostly deer and turkey and occasionally bear. Um, bear is something I want to process someday. I've never, I've never broken down a bear and, and that would be fun. Although I've heard they can be quite stinky, at least around here where they're eating a lot of trash. From what I understand, it's mostly all about the diet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've never processed a bear. I've never had a chance to eat a bear. Um, strangely, the best wild game meat I've ever had. And this is, this can open up a, a whole wormhole, but was a uh, mountain lion. Oh, weird. I didn't know people ate mountain lion. We had a guy, he has his own TV show, uh, Nick's Wild Ride. We had him in the studio and we just asked him like, hey, what's your favorite uh, wild game meat? And he said, it's not my favorite wild game meat. It's my favorite meat, period. And he said, mountain lion. We thought he was lying yeah, to sure. us. Like we thought he was just trying to pull our leg. And then all of a sudden I started hearing it more and more. Um, so we had a listener who somebody had just gotten one, dropped some off. It is, it's like more tender pork. Oh, wow. And a little bit sweeter maybe i we can't figure it out why it stays so tender but it is so so good um the best bear um from what i hear is uh blueberry bear so if they've been eating on blueberries right before you get them that's supposed to be the best time um you guys don't have wild hogs up there yet huh not yet uh, they'll be yep. there they'll be there there's reports of them up in canada wow. so once once that gets up there Good yeah. luck. Well, yeah. What a nuisance. You, you can't get rid of them. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'll have Cannot to try uh, Mountain Lion. That sounds really intriguing and, and quite appealing. It always, it, it shocked me. It shocks everybody who hears about it. But I, I mean, we've tried all sorts of wild sure. game and that is the best. Yeah. I, I, my, so far, my favorite that I've had is elk or reindeer. Elk is absolutely delicious as well. I've not had reindeer. Yeah, my, my wife's family is is Swedish. And so we went to visit her relatives like 10 years ago. That's awesome. Reindeer is everywhere. Uh and it, you know, it's very similar to elk. It's that sweet, tender, delicious. Yeah. Did you try that fermented uh is it fermented shark or whatever the fermented <laughs> fish is that they eat up there? I haven't I haven't had that. That I didn't see that in Sweden. I know that's that's big in like Iceland and, and maybe it's oh, maybe in that's Denmark. Iceland. Sorry. No, no, it's, um, and it may be parts of, of, uh, of Sweden that I haven't been to yet. I, I, you know, I've thought about it. My, my brother who, who loves to travel in like the, the Arctic circle and stuff and is a very adventurous eater. We, we've talked about whether or not we could actually do it. And I think I would have to, if I was presented the opportunity, but I'm not sure I'd love it. <laughs> Just to be able to say you did yeah, it for just the most because part. I'm curious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Jake, is there anything else you want to talk about from a BAV standpoint? No, I mean, there's so much we could talk about, but, uh, you know, I just, if there are listeners out there who are meat processors and, and working in the Northeast and just, uh, you know, whether or not you think you want support or just interested in learning more about what we're doing, please reach out to me. Um, 
you know, I love working with meat processors and there's a lot of opportunities right now uh, from from the federal government, from state governments um, that, that are really exciting. And, and I want to make the most of it and, and have the biggest impact we can and really see a robust local meat processing system in, in the Northeast and in, in New England. So feel free to reach out to me. Well, like what I said earlier, what I think you are focusing on, I, I really do believe to be the future um, of the meat industry. So good luck. We'll we'll watch you with uh, interest. And hopefully in a couple of years, we can talk again. You guys are five times the size you are now. I, I would love that. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. I, I think I mentioned this to you when we were emailing about this, but uh, I was so excited when you guys reached out to me because... Uh, I've taught classes for for years, um, educational workshops all throughout New England, well, throughout the country. And when people ask me, you know, where can I get equipment for like making sausage? I'm just starting out. I want to do it at home. Wallens is one of the first places I send people. And so it was really satisfying to to, to connect with you guys and, and be on this podcast. Thank you. And we're back. <laughs> I'm in a mood today. That was really fast. It just felt like couple seconds Just went by. Not long at all. Yeah. Uh, great conversation. Seemed like a really nice guy. So happy to have him on. Um, one of the things that he talked about at the end, but he did email me uh, when I initially reached out and said, hey, would you be interested? He's like, oh, I've done how to process classes like all over the country and I always send people to Waltons. So that was a pretty cool little, Very little cool. tie in there. All right. Anything else we want to talk about before meat matters? All right. Let's get into it. Uh, from the Daily Meal, so not the Daily Mail, the Daily Meal, the ultimate guide to understanding meat labels. It says, extraneous information, particularly on meat, can be downright misleading. Some are claims closely monitored by and requiring authorization from the USDA, such as raised without hormones, grass-fed, and free-range. These are more ambiguous than they should be. So getting into what exactly it all means. The first one we're going to tackle is organic. So it says, according to the USDA, for meat to be called organic, animals should be reared in circumstances that are most like what they would encounter in nature, meaning that they have access to the outside, though there is no guarantee they will use it. Get 30% of the nutrition from grass, ruminants only, are given 100% organic food, and are free of hormones or antibiotics. So first, the big one I see as a problem there is circumstances that are most like what they would encounter in nature. Like, how do you quantify that? Yeah, that's difficult. It's uh, stupid. Very vague. It has no, it almost has no meaning, huh. right? Like, oh, that's mostly what they would encounter in nature. There's no way of being like- Let's just yes. throw predators at them once in a while <laughs> Right, too. there you go. There you go. <laughs> but that would so you're, so you're, much stress. What you're doing? letting, you're importing tigers to chase the cows around. Right, that's mostly what they would encounter. Super cost effective too. You go ahead and recreate the short-faced bear and just toss it around all the bison. Let's just start a whole new evolutionary cycle, and we'll just cap capital on, on you know on the best little bits that we can make money out of. So. But then their reward for surviving the predators is we then eat them still. All right, organic meat producers must undergo certification per the Organic Food Production Act conducted by the National Organic Program. That costs money. This is getting certified organic is not a free process. You pay money to be certified organic. 
From there, according to Michigan State University, four categories of organic certification can be required. 100% organic or organic, where 95% of ingredients are certified organic. So you can just inject them with 5% whatever you want. Like here's 5% steroids. (laughs) Pure gasoline. (laughs) (laughs) Made with organic ingredients where 70% of ingredients are certified organic and less. And less than 70% organic ingredients. What this doesn't ensure is what happens once the animal is processed. At this point, they can be supplemented with colorants or flavorings that are not organic. <laughs> so it doesn't matter at all. It's like we've said it too many times. Organic, it doesn't organic. matter at all. Define oh it. I, don't, I still don't even get it. it. It's just if they can do whatever they want with the animal after it's killed, <laughs> what does it matter? It insists upon it. So. <laughs> That was a great reference, Patrick. All right, moving on. All natural or 100% natural. For meat to be considered all natural or 100% natural, the USDA states that a product containing no artificial ingredient or added color is only minimally processed and it should remain minimally processed, meaning not intrinsically altered. A qualifying label must accompany this item. For example, no artificial ingredients, minimally processed. While this sounds good in theory, it does nothing to regulate how the animals are being raised. So we have the exact opposite of the one before. We could be raising our chickens in a landfill, but then don't do anything special during the processing, and we get to call them 100% natural. Also... The way I understand that is you can't inject it with water, broth, anything like that. So you are going to. I wonder if you could to an extent because it just says no artificial ingredient and minimally processed. So could you inject with just water? I mean, it's not going to, nothing's going to help if you just inject with water. It's going to come out. You got to add salt or a phosphate mm-hmm. or something. So can you add. I don't know if you could add a phosphate because would that be classified as that can't be natural? natural. That it's can't be. Got to be considered artificial. Also, though, so. I want to argue the minimally, like minimally for what? Minimally to taste good? That's totally different than just minimally. Yeah. It's. I mean, I, yeah. There's. There's got to be like a actual like code of regulations that has some more specific things in it because that's very. You would big. think there is no certification for this label, nor is the USDA or yeah. FDA. For poultry and eggs, regulate this term in any meaningful way, meaning practically anything goes. So, <laughs> so what are you doing buying 100% natural? It means nothing. Basically, if you've got a food product out there, label it all natural and see what happens. It's the same thing. I was just talking about this with my wife again. You know how I've complained? like Nobody's taking things off the shelf and checking the calories, the fat, the sugar. They're allowed to go up or down by 20% of what's on the label. No. 20%. That's bad. Right? How sure you are. How how sure? I can't talk. I got you. I know what you're saying. My wife told me, and it's nutrition, so I highly doubt she's wrong. True. Okay. She has gone next. Like, she looks amazing right now. She's shredding fat off her like crazy. And how she said she's done it is she's eating nothing processed. Like she's eating literally only whole meats and vegetables. Terrible way to live. Yeah. 
maybe kind of. I just so getting get sidetrack for a second. Okay. So someday we're gonna have our sourdough episode, mm. and I it just. I don't know. I feel like life's always going to slow down. It never does, but I'm waiting for it to slow down to do stuff. Cause I also forgot freaking mashed potatoes today. Today was supposed to be the day it guys. Wasn't gonna be. I'm so disappointed. John walked, when I walked in, uh, talked to John, he's like, do you have anything besides like blah, blah. And I'm like, no, no, dang it. Today was supposed to be mashed potatoes. So we're going to do that eventually, but I'm sidetracking on the sidetrack, but, um, whole foods. I bought my wife a flour mill coolest thing ever so now we're making sourdough with whole grain wheat That's fantastic amazing. absolutely I, fantastic i still say I ha it had no butter it had no uh, maple syrup and it was the best pancake i've ever had mm -hmm. like it the taste was unbelievable the texture was unbelievable it incredible i cannot wait to get more of that i prefer like all the oddball things like that over just like bread but sourdough bread so good just by itself can she make a hard crusted sourdough yeah. bread oh. So we need to. Can so you we bring need, some of that in. Yeah, we need to make a whole list I of like what do we want. Do you always have hard crusted sourdough bread at home now? No. Okay. We only. I don't know. We only actually make bread like I don't know a couple times a week. Okay. She's got the starter there and just does a it couple all the time. times a week. Well, you're, but that's you're like baking different loaves of bread a couple times a week. No. Well, it might be we don't do like a loaf of bread very often. It's usually like tortillas okay. or pancakes or uh, I don't remember what the last thing is she did. Um, she did something else weird. When we do meet your six meetup for one of the breakfasts, she'll have to Ooh. make a huge batch of sourdough <laughs> pancakes. We'll make them here. We won't make her make them, but yeah. we'll have to do that. I'm going to have to learn how to do her whole culture thing because that I assume is going to take a lot of culture. That's a good point. So this yeah. is a precious resource that we don't have a lot of. Oh, it grows. You can You control how much it grows too. When my wife doesn't want to like... Uh, deal with it for a few days. We got stuff going on. You just throw it in the fridge. Throw it in the fridge. It doesn't grow. For how long? However long. She always takes like- That's not accurate because that's how I killed uh, Joe Hells. Yeah, oh. I was just in the fridge. Yeah. Sure. Oh, I don't know. Did, did you have it sealed or unsealed? Sealed. Or sealed? Yeah. So I think you're supposed to like lightly cover it, but not like seal it. Hmm. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. But I'm not an expert on yeah, this. Yeah, sure. So, but my wife always takes like a bit out and puts it, has it in the fridge. That way, if something bad happens, she has something to, that. to yeah, go back to. All right. Next one is free range. So free range or free roaming is one of the more purposeless labels on meat products. <laughs> it is only regulated by the USDA for poultry, but not egg producing poultry. And even so, very loosely. The regulation states that poultry should be allowed access to the outside but it does not say what that looks like. There's no minimum amount of time the animal should spend outdoors, <laughs> nor does it indicate that the animal must spend time outdoors. In other words, just because a chicken has a door from its enclosure to the great outdoors, it doesn't have to use it to be called free range. That's unbelievable. What did you call them once? Homeless? You said free range chickens. You said, yeah, I could also call it stealing eggs from homeless chickens yeah something like that I, I don't remember what it was but uh i'm not a fan of free range uh i think it's hokey and overrated but this just makes me believe that more and but i would be the if, it, if i was a chicken i'd be the chicken that had access to the outside and it's just like dude i'm just gonna sit here i ain't I, going outside why would i do that <laughs> all right cage free is the next one cage free is even more ambiguous and meaningless than free range <laughs> 
this is entertaining. I'm glad outside you found this. Of, yes. Outside of USDA <laughs> organic certification, which does not require poultry to be given access to the outdoors, the term cage-free is not regulated in any way. It is feel-good marketing strategy to make you believe your chickens lived a life free to roam about without imprisonment. In reality, just because the, these animals aren't being restrained in battery cages, which have been outlawed in several countries around the world, including the EU, but not the US, they can still be restricted within their warehouse-like enclosures where they may not be getting that much space to spread their wings or guaranteed any access to the outside. So again, uh, free range, cage-free, ignore those. They do nothing. All right. Grass-fed or pasture-raised. Now, this is where I care a little bit more. Grass-fed refers to ruminants fed exclusively a diet of grass or forage and no grains. Pasture raised or pastured or pastured refers to animals who have spent time outdoors eating grass and fodder. Pasture raid is, raised is an unregulated term, leaving its interpretation up to each producer. When it comes to the term grass fed, things are a bit more ambiguous. While producers wanting to include this term on their labors must submit to such a request to the USDA's Food Safety Inspection Service for approval beginning in 2016, the Agricultural Marketing Service Branch for the USDA no longer regulates the accuracy of these claims. This means producers may finish their cattle on grain to help them gain weight closer to slaughter. Grass-fed also does not indicate whether or not the animal was given antibiotics or hormones, uh, but I don't think it does. Like, I don't think grass-fed, oh, that has no antibiotics or hormones injected. Those two things are are totally different in my mind. Yeah, I think some people look at it and they start to think like, ooh, this was grass-fed. It's fancy, so it shouldn't have the rest of the stuff. But When in general, really just what it means is it doesn't taste quite as good. Yeah, basically your fat's not going to be as marbled. It's not going to be as yummy. I might give me that corn-fed beef. I baby. might think, and this is probably you're not going to agree with this, but I might think that a grass-fed burger tastes a little bit better, but definitely not a grass-fed steak. Yeah, I don't know. Burger, I yeah. So you remember when we when we had Wagyu burgers? Mm -hmm. Like we didn't identify Not those correctly. properly. My opinion and theory is that once you grind it up, you lose so much of the what should be the difference in taste and mouthfeel that you don't you don't you don't notice the difference. So it, the, a, a steak comparing a steak between different different types of animals, different ways they were raised and fed, like that's the best way to differentiate once you get to a burger yeah yeah it's burger. but um zach from crables i was with him a couple weekends ago and he says he likes to put in wagyu fat into his ground beef so it does something i imagine it's still good tasting fat yeah but I yeah, I don't know. yeah i don't know we, we're going to have to do this We should again. probably buy a half a Wagyu cow <laughs> for Walton's. How about uh, talk, talk with Zach and get like, get, I don't know, a handful of, handful of steaks and some burger and some stuff. And we'll do a little side by side, side, by side test, but we need to like have some, some clearly laid ground rules on what we're doing. Cause we can't let this be one of our normal deals where we try 20,000 things at one time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be just like. Also, I think, I still think. Patrick was lying to us about what was what at the end of that. No, I, I, 
See, but that's what he would say. No, no he would. That's actually fair. All right. Grain fed or corn fed? Grain fed or corn fed is also not regulated, although it may evoke strong feelings. For some, it's equated with feeding animals a diet antithetical to their natural diet, like grass fed beef. That makes it sound like grass fed beef is also not how they normally eat. Poorly written sentence. For others, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I know that it's like connotate, but I've never seen the word connote in one place before it connotes. I mean, that's a stupid word there. I've never, it connotes a specific quality of meat that is tender, has more marbling and maybe juicier than grass fed grain fed beef can be labeled as organic, all natural or both. As long as the grain fed to the animal is organic and it was not treated with any artificial flavorings, ingredients or colorants after slaughter. So you could get Hmm. organic grain-fed beef. Interesting. I mean, it makes sense. I would pay more to have something labeled as non-organic corn-fed beef, and I'd be like, heck yeah, three bucks more a pound for that steak. Give it it to me. All right. Made in the USA or product of the USA. This Whoever wrote this is just a, a savage. (laughs) This particular label is somewhat infuriating. Under the current law, this label is strictly voluntary, often applied to meat imported but slaughtered in the U.S., and meat that has been imported but rewrapped or has otherwise undergone additional handling. In other words, it gives the Americans a false sense of security in believing that the meat they're consuming was born, raised, slaughtered, and processed in America, where up to 6% of all red meat and poultry is consumed in the U.S., is imported or imported and 12% of all red meat, poultry and eggs purchased in the U S have these labels. That's insane. While a new rule was proposed by federal agriculture officials to change this rule to strictly refer to domestically produced meat has not yet gone into effect. No antibiotics uh, added. According to the USDA, no antibiotics added labeling may be used on labels for meat or poultry products if sufficient documentation is provided by the producer to the agency demonstrating that the animals were raised without antibiotics. If you see labeling to this effect, the labeling should be accompanied by either USDA processed verified shield or USDA organic shield on the package. Any other claims cannot be guaranteed or verified. Additionally, Contrary to popular belief, this statement does not encompass the use of hormones or any other pharmaceuticals. And while regular antibiotic use is of concern due to the increase of antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria, this does not prevent a producer from treating a sick animal with antibiotics as long as the adequate time is giving post-antibiotic use for the animal to pass it through the system before it's slaughtered. So... No antibiotics added other than that one time we had to when it was sick. That just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. This is fascinating. Like, yeah. So this next one is no hormones added or no hormones administrator. What do you want to bet? It doesn't mean that the animal was never given hormones. Yeah, there's probably something in it. All right. We're going to have to post the link of this. Oh no! This this next one's oh, a little more stringent. It's real? Okay. There's the no no hormones administered, uh, may be added to the label if the producer has undergone verification by the USDA, submitting supporting documentation. 
That's like the only thing so far you've had, you have to do to like actually go through a deeper process there. Maybe not the only thing, but the biggest, biggest piece. So, um, that's interesting. Our, our hormones, I assume hormones are probably have a bigger concern than any of the other areas there so far, or at least more of a kind of taboo type of thing that mo for most people. Yes, but hold on. Did you read the last sentence? No. It says supplemental growth hormones that are given to animals to help promote more rapid growth, larger size, or more robust milk production is in question here. So those are the hormones that are being administered is ones for rapid growth. And so, production. okay, they're saying that's what they're Those are the hormones that are saying are not being used here. Others maybe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when it says is in question here, I read it as in, eh, they might be added in there. Okay. You're probably right there. Humanely raised. I don't even want to. Well, the USDA requires meat producers to submit substantiating documentation to verify any animal raising claims such as humanely raised before including such claims on meat labels. The standards required to meet the criteria are modest. They also aren't enforced. While third-party certifications can be obtained by producers, these are unregulated and inconsistent, making them useless from a consumer awareness perspective. Short of establishing more rigorous enforcement and qualifications to meet this kind of claim, your best option is to purchase meat from a local meat producer. Just what we were talking about with our guest. All vegetarian diet, vegetarian fed. I've never even seen that. Have you ever seen that? No, never seen that. I mean, how That's many a new one for me. Chicken, they'll eat a lot of bugs. They'll actually eat pretty much anything you throw at them. Beef doesn't eat meat. I, no, they're total, total like vegetarian. Pigs ate that dude in Red Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's in the show? What am? Oh, there's a show on HBO where every time they kill somebody, they feed them to the pigs. Um, that, that was a, in a Guy Ritchie film called Snatch no. that fed the guys to the pigs. Really good show. Really bad show. Like really, really loaded with a lot of bad language and just so Ozarks. Uh, hold on. Deadwood. Have you ever seen oh, Deadwood? Yeah yeah yeah. 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 That's an old show. Is it old? Oh yeah. Oh, wow. Deadwood's probably from 2002. Way, really? You might not know this all. That's considered one of the greatest shows of all time. That's on top 10 list. Yeah. Oh, For yeah. sure. The first season. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Deadwood is definitely on my list of, I mean, we need, we did movies last time. We need to do TV, TV shows, shows coming up. Okay. Yeah, you're not going to like my TV show list. <laughs> tell you that. I don't know if you, uh, if you have Deadwood on there, I'll like it. Westerns, well, I, did, I didn't know Deadwood was a thing until probably a year ago. Oh, so. yeah. It's, I, Patrick, do you have my Deadwood DVD box set? No. Years ago, I let Patrick look through all my DVDs and just take. Was that in there? I think it should have been. That, I no, I kept Banner I, Brothers. I sold a bunch of stuff. Okay. So. No, I don't care. <laughs> no, he not going to bother me. Is there anything else you want to let me borrow from your house? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, so back to the all vegetarian diet. Like other animal raising claims, terms such as vegetarian diet or vegetarian fed are included under the USDA's animal raising claims labeling guidelines, which require documentation with the substantiating evidence to prove to prove a producer is following protocols for all vegetarian diet. 
These claims are seldom verified by on-farm inspection, making organic labeling a better bet to guarantee animals are not being given feed, including animal byproducts of any kind, such as waste from slaughterhouses, animal feces, manure, and other animal products that's safe for humans to eat. Okay, hold on a second. I think my entire um, perspective on this article just flipped right there. I don't think this person's a savage. I think this person is anti-meat. Oh, sure. Probably. Yeah. Probably showing the quote unquote hypocrisy, uh-huh. yep. which it is. I mean, it's, I won't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue against it. I think a lot of the labeling that we deal with is silly. Right. But also least, I'd like but. to point out that nowhere in this article does this person list their bona fides for saying any of this. I don't know. I have, I have the author pulled up after we're done here. I'm going to do some research awesome. to figure out who she okay. is. Uh, GMO free, non-GMO. Understanding non-GMO labeling on meat is complicated due to several over- overlapping laws regarding mandating label labeling bioengineered foods. Existing USDA organic regulations, which automatically require animals to be fed non-GMO feed. And regulation allowing organic meat and poultry producers to file paperwork with the agricultural marketing service to include additional claims about their meat being non-GMO. That is a very long sentence. And I'm pretty sure I got lost somewhere along the second line. So just ignored the GMO, non-GMO stuff. All right. Fresh. The terminology fresh or farm fresh may be our favorite misleading label on meats of them all. Wouldn't all meat be considered fresh? Not if it's cooked. Well, okay, but everything we're kind of, I, I don't know, I guess I assumed everything we're talking about is like, so at least far, all the pictures we're yeah, looking at, people yeah. people can't so see far, the pictures, but they're all fresh product. That's the only thing I can think of that would automatically qualify as not fresh. All right. Unless the labeling refers to poultry, it means absolutely nothing. Where poultry is concerned, fresh defines poultry that has not been stored below 26 degrees Fahrenheit. Poultry kept below zero degrees Fahrenheit must be labeled as frozen. Poultry that's been held between zero degrees and 26 degrees isn't required to have any (laughs) labeling, which is perplexing. Otherwise, any farm can indiscriminately use the health halo term fresh to conjure images of the animals grazing in the field as a feel-good marketing ploy to make you purchase their product. It is false advertising that grossly misleads consumers. If you want to guarantee some modicum of quality of life for the animals, opt for organically certified meat or find a local meat purveyor that is transparent with their animal husbandry protocols. Didn't she tell us early on, earlier on in this that organic basically means nothing? Yeah. And now she's saying, go find something organic. Yeah. I've been putting together a list when we're done here. I have, I have a new label for uh, the next chicken breast that needs to be sold at the, at the, at the grocery store. Okay. It's a handful. Uh, kosher. According to the USDA, kosher labeling may be used only on the labels of meat and poultry products prepared under rabbinical supervision. That is all it says, which begs the question, how exactly does this occur? As we researched it, kosher labeling is further regulated in most instances at the state level with various independent organizations offering additional oversight to ensure animals labeled as kosher are being treated and slaughtered humanely and using ritual establishments under Jewish law. To guarantee that a product is kosher, 
Consumers should look for clearly marked kosher symbols denoting the certification agency involved. Okay, so that was nothing. Halal, similar to kosher, culture, kosher. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Allergen labeling. This will be interesting. And this is the last one. While the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumers Protection Act does not expressly require labeling meat, poultry, or eggs, voluntary labeling is encouraged by the USDA's FSIS. Under the Federal Meat Inspection Act, Poultry Products Inspection Act, and the Egg Products Inspection Act, any ingredient used in manufacturing process or formulation of a meat, poultry, or egg product that falls within the category of the nine major food allergens must be indicated on the label. The label should include what allergens the meat package might contain and the source of said allergen, for example, made from milk. Additionally, information regarding the product manufacturing environment may be necessary if the meat got processed in a facility that also processes one of the top allergens. Okay. This explains why you might see gluten-free label on steak. It seems out of place. No, it is out of place. It's very out of place. I, the, the best, I was at Menards one time. The best thing I've ever seen on like gluten-free was they had like big bags of popcorn yep. and their big lettering label, gluten-free. It's like, yeah, no, no, really? crap. like that's, if you got, if you didn't know that, yeah, you're dumb. You just, yeah. All right, go ahead. That's why they put it on there though, is because people get excited about stuff like that. They think that hey, it's something special and it just it's catch, not. It's just because it catches people's eyes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're going to start up our own uh, food processing company um, and we're going to sell chicken breast okay. that is fresh or frozen. I don't know. We're going to store it at 15 degrees and we're going to call it vegetarian fed, humanely <laughs> raised, all natural, fresh, free range, cage free, organic, no antibiotics added, non-GMO, no artificial flavoring, no gluten, no high fructose corn syrup, chicken breast. Oh, and uh, kosher and, and halal all. certified. So... What we need to do is rearrange those letters till they make some sort of word <laughs> and just call our company that. Uh, but I'm 100% in. Let's do it. All right, moving on. Cargill to sell China poultry business as meat margins fall. Get to where I can read this. Uh, Cargill is selling its poultry farming and processing business in China, the world's biggest meat market, as weak demand and high costs continue to pressure margins. The world's largest agricultural commodities trader has agreed to sell its Cargill Protein China operations to a private equity firm, DCP Capital, a company spokesperson said without disclosing the terms. The deal is expected to close in 2023, subject to regulatory approval. I, I don't know. I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing. I mean, we don't know anything about DCP Capital, but... Cargo is divesting itself of a asset that seems to be waning. Seems fine to me. Yeah, half of the company, in theory, shouldn't or shouldn't even be owned by Cargill, anyways. That's usually a Chinese stipulation that if you're going, if you're like an American company and you're operating a business in China, half of it has to be owned by a Chinese corporation. Yep. So, which they then require a CCP official to be in the business. So. All right. Uh, after years of being vegetarian, they couldn't help but eat meat again. This is from Bon Appetit. Welcome to the Anxious Carnivores, a mini-series about the changing culture around meat consumption. Despite growing pressures to quit meat, many Americans can't quite do so, but they're getting weirder and weirder about how they eat it. 
I just found that line to be great. In 2014, Veronica Sent started dreaming about meat every night. She'd turn the lights off, drift away, and then boom, I was eating massive tins of tuna and hot dogs. And not just any hot dogs. These were Wurstels, a bluish pink German style sausage typically made from pork and beef and cased in sheep's intestine. Sense decision to eat meat after going so long without it might seem like an unrealistically hard pivot, but many like her, long-term vegetarians in the US do eventually eat meat again. At just 5% by some estimates, plant-based eaters are already the vast majority in this country. In 2014, Phonolytics, formerly the Humane Research Council, an organization that conducts research to support animal welfare, discovered that 84% of the 11,000 vegans and vegetarians in their study pretty quickly reverted back to their omnivorous <laughs> ways. One third of participants lasted less than three months and over half started eating meat again within the first year. I would just like to applaud those people mm -hmm. for returning to the correct lifestyle. Excellent for them. I only made it one week, so. And that was hard for you. Yeah. I could, yeah, going back to, I can never do vegan. I could live vegetarian for an extended period of time. It'd be possible. Not vegan. You just eat cheese. That was horrible. Stop. Yeah. Um, anyone in the Wichita area, uh, Grimaldi's new pizza shop over by Whole Foods, thumbs up approval. Very, very good. A distributor that sells meat to New York City food carts admits to selling uninspected and misbranded products. A poultry distributor that sells food to carts in New York has admitted to preparing and selling uninspected food and misbranded products and agreed to stop. Oh, thank, thank goodness. <laughs> According to federal prosecutors, the U.S. government sued N&M Foods Wholesale Supply and its owners, uh, Omar Hamlin and Musaf uh, Ashraf, for repeatedly preparing and selling uninspected or misbranded poultry products since 2018. Their actions were in violation of the Poultry Products Inspection Act, a law that aims to protect public health by imposing requirements on food suppliers regarding the inspection, processing, labeling, and packaging of poultry products. According to the complaint filed in Manhattan Federal Court, NM offered for sale more than 900 pounds of misbranded poultry that had not been federal, federally inspected. On multiple occasions, the company prepared marinated chicken kebab skewers in a processing room inside NM's warehouse without federal inspections. In one occasion in May of 2021, NM bought 280 pounds of chicken leg meat, cut and marinated it, and then returned it to its original packaging before selling it, uninspected and misbranded. I, I mean, Wait, so that's why they got in trouble. So it could have been federally inspected, but they took it, did something further processed. Was it. not federally inspected. At the beginning of that, the 280 pounds. Oh, that's fair. I'm assuming they're still doing it in their NM's warehouse, which is not federally inspected. Okay. Unless they somehow went to a federally inspected for that 280 pounds. Wow. I mean, yeah. if you're eating from a food cart in New York City, you're eventually going to get food poisoning. Right. It's just going to happen unless you've got an iron gut. Um, but yeah, just be I don't, very, very careful. I don't see the point of cutting corners for just like 280 pounds of chicken there or the 900 pounds is talked about elsewise. It's not like if you were like, if you're going to cheat the system, this sounds horrible, but at least cheat the system. And go do hard. It good. Yep. Yeah. Be a criminal. Go big or go home. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are over time. So we'll skip to this next one. Uh, 
This is from Veg, Veg News. Why this CEO says plant-based meat is a lot like electric cars. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do agree with him there in that it will never work and it's actually way worse for the environment. So that's a good, it's a good uh, parallel, but it is for the exact opposite reasons that he thinks it is. I don't think it's a good parallel because I like the idea of electric cars. Why? You're faster, more torque, just more. You're faster off the line. You're not going to get up to the same top end speed. Yeah. You'll never beat the combustion, internal combustion engine. It's just not going to happen. I don't care about going 200 miles an hour. You would rather go zero to 60 fast than be able to drive 200 miles an hour? Oh, yeah. I'm the opposite. Yeah. I I mean, the new new Bugatti, I, I think, is a sub two second zero to 60 now. And yeah, like the really top end uh, electric cars could still probably just barely beat it, but I'd still rather have the internal combustion engine. I don't know. I'm just, I like, I'm a big Ram truck guy. Um, you don't say. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know, um, all, all of Walton's is a big uh, Ram truck place that every vehicle we have um, is either a Ram truck or a Jeep. Um, but, um, Ram is coming out with like an electric version of their truck and that looks sweet. Like it's the practicality is going to be a problem because never going to it, the way things stand now range still 40 miles can't get it. Tops. Well, no, like 500 miles, but sure. Uh, still a problem. I Not need, the way you I need to be able to just go fill up at a gas tank fill up my gas tank at a gas station and go not wait for an hour or two to charge. But the specs on that truck versus the normal ice ice version is 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 going to be internal combustion engine oh, is okay. going to be better on the electric. Okay, so in in the daily man's ability to get something, yes, if you you want to buy a Bugatti, 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 like we don't have that type of money unless you're doing something on the side. I don't know about <laughs> like. That's it's never going to happen, but we can buy an electric car or truck. Yeah. But a, it's not like there's no cost in topping off your batteries. That electricity still costs money. They're more expensive. They're impossible to fix. They're worse for the environment. And then when you're done with it, it can't just go to a junkyard. I'm not concerned about all that. I'm concerned about <laughs> having fun driving it. <laughs> I'm more concerned about the environment than you are. Yeah, I think you are. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Uh, grocery store secrets revealed. Butcher admits grocery store marinades. Okay, we'll just read it. The man said, all of the preseason meat that you see at the counter, I guarantee is rotten and has been seasoned and mixed with onions to make it smell edible. That's disgusting. That's gross. He also says that seafood in cases at stores isn't safe because the cases aren't kept cold enough to keep the food fresh and people are better off buying frozen seafood. Yeah, I don't believe that. Yeah, neither do I. Scroll down a little bit. Uh, There's one person. So like some people who work in other stores respond. Um, There's one that brings up Wegmans. It's in there somewhere. Somebody from Wegmans responded. They're like, you must have worked at a terrible disgusting place because i worked at wegmans and we took pride in Publix. 
No, not Publix. It's Wegmans. Oh, um, maybe it's oh there's. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. It says, y'all work for some shady places. I worked in the meat department at Wegmans. We took pride in our work. So many, what does it say? So many... Uh, so many procedures to ensure it doesn't food say freshness. So many procedure. Yeah, they missed an S. To ensure food freshness. But yeah, I mean, again, just know where you're buying your meat from. Okay. Uh, Beyond Meat Class Action alleges company misrepresented production capacities. So this... Do you remember about a year ago, we started talking about a processor or a co-packer who was making the Beyond Meat stuff, came out and said, hey, they're lying to you about the amount of protein in this. We did kind of a deep dive on this. This is investors. Ooh. Investors are now suing them. So the Plaintiff Retail Wholesale Department Store Union Local 338 Retirement Fund, a pension system that provides retirement benefits to certain New York and New Jersey employed employees, <clears throat> filed the Beyond Meat class action lawsuit on behalf of itself and others who purchased Beyond Meat common stock between May 5th, 2020 and October 13th, 2022. We'll see what happens with that, but forget shrinking market share, forget all of those problems. That is what could bring this company down. Uh, yeah. Just meat vending machines. This is from the Altoona Mirror. Um, talking about placing meat vending machines in front of other businesses. Don't read anything. I just want you to read this paragraph and get your reaction from it. We're not USDA approved facility, so we can only sell to customers from our store, Greg said. But if I have one of my vending machines outside of your store, I can sell to them because it's my vending machine through my ownership. So it's as if someone, it's as if I had someone there selling it through my company. That sounds legal. Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't think it did. Yeah. They're still the ones selling it. They're not selling it to someone else and going through. It's not going across state lines. Uh, so sounds, if I bought, sounds kosher. if we bought USDA inspected pork and I made snack sticks out of it and we had a vending machine out front, we could put something in there and just sell it. Uh, technically I, so in theory, we might have a couple small hoops to jump through, but could we do it? Yes, we could. Hmm. Um, we would, I mean, as long as we're, if we're bringing in federally inspected meat, we can transform it into something and sell it. Um, do we? No, because we don't want to jump through the hoops. other hoops. Um, we don't have, yeah, I don't, kind of a bad example. Cause that's, I don't think that's what they're necessarily talking about. It'd be like, I don't know, one of the places around here, Walnut Valley. Um, instead, they have several meat markets in, mm -hmm. in, in around Wichita. Instead of, I don't think they have one in Wichita, all the, a lot of the around communities it, around. Right. So say they wanted to put them in, in Wichita. They took, they stole our idea of going to Quick Trip and they put, they got to deal with Quick Trip and they put their vending machines at every Quick Trip. Um, now, bad, probably bad example because Walnut Valley is federally inspected, I believe. But if they were, pretend they're state inspected, you're saying there's vending machines for Walnut Valley at Quick Trip? No. Oh. May, I'm developing a did. whole scenario. Okay. okay. Like if that if they did that and they were state inspected, like that would be their vending machine. They're selling it. They're just renting space there. That's the so, exact same thing as putting your meat in a grocery store, though. Mm, 
It's so similar no. that uh, very gray line. Controlled access. It's not uh, not the same. You, someone from Quick Trip isn't just going to be able to go over and do something to the machine. The machine would have to be controlled by your third party or your first party. But what's the... Whatever. I don't see the difference between it being in a vending machine and in a meat case. Like there's rules. It seems like those rules should be the same. Oh, I mean, I could argue that, yeah, what you're saying would be correct, but I'm also, I, I can see how that would be okay based upon what the rules are, what the regulations are. Um, but yeah, is, could you argue, is there any difference between that and in a meat case? Eh. You still come back to a access control type of thing, so there there's there is some difference, but is it enough? I don't I don't think so. You're still talking about a different environment that's not being um, inspected there. But at the, on the other hand, the inspection process is about the the slaughter, the, the the fabrication, the packaging. Once it's already in the package, it's labeled. It's got a inspection stamp on it. That inspection's done. There's no more inspection at that point. Yeah, but so okay. It, at that point, really, it doesn't really matter from there. So I don't know. Yeah, I could. I don't know. I could. I can. I can argue both sides probably on it, but I don't. I'm fine with it. I just don't think that there's any difference between putting a vending machine on another commercial property or putting it inside that commercial property in a meat case. Those are the same to me. Okay. I don't know. The only thing I can, I can honestly like argue is different between them is the access control, which is, if it's inside, matter, if it's inside the other business and they have access to it, they could, I don't know. They just have access to it. They could do something to it if they wanted, but if it's in the vending machine, it's controlled, it's separate, but it's, no. no one can get to it. But you, what does it matter if it's inspected or not, if we're worried about the Dylan's employee poking a hole in the bag. Oh, I don't think it matters. It doesn't matter point. at all. So what's the difference? Eh, okay. Nothing really. Okay. All right. Last one. Um, my meat eating family picks on me for being vegetarian. Dear Reverend, I'm the youngest in my family and also the only vegetarian. Anytime we have a get together involving food, I get picked on. Backyard barbecue season is the worst. With that upon us, do you have any tips for how to make them stop? I just said nothing. You deserve it. <laughs> you should be ridiculed and hopefully eventually you start eating meat again. Get your blood iron up a little bit and gain a backbone and throw a punch. Yeah. That is my recommendation. Throw a punch. Yeah, to be honest, or make, take a trip to Stabby Town. <laughs> I I would argue the other side in that it it it's I mean it's a it's a two way street you don't like we sit and complain about stuff that other people are trying to do or force on us you can't turn it around and then do the same to them if someone wants to be a vegetarian fine do it do, just don't tell us that we should don't change things in our world because of what you want. Um, I absolutely is it, is it okay to still harass people about stuff? I mean, yes, we, of course. <laughs> the, the world wouldn't be the world it is if people couldn't have some fun and poke and play and joke. But there is a difference between joking and like 
terrorizing someone over it. I like the idea so, of terrorizing somebody over it. I mean, it. can you can you give somebody a hard time for it? Sure. It's pro it's that's gonna happen. Yeah. As long as it's if you know. you're doing the thing that is against the social norm, I mean there's a reason it's the social norm. So expect some pushback. Yeah, loser. Right. What do you do that's not the social norm? There's so many things. Which which one do I want to probably pick? have to end this podcast? Feels like we're running over time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Even as I mean, it takes something that's halfway mainstream. Uh you you like to go fishing and hunting. That is not that is a min minority thing in America. So should you be ridiculed and made fun of for no, it? No, no, no. But everybody else should be for not doing it. <laughs> There's a correct way to live your life. I'm doing it correctly. Let's <laughs> see. It doesn't. That's why I said it's a two way street. When 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 you're in the majority of the minority, you don't get to just go. Well, it's my way. Sure. We're always going to do Tell it. Tell me like a band this. I don't like. They're terrible. <laughs> Horrible. No matter what. No matter what. Yeah, I'm on the correct way, American highway, and everyone needs to join me. All right, that's the last of that. Real quick, since it's NBA final season, our Cultural five minutes at the end is going to be least favorite NBA franchise, NFL franchise, and MLB franchise. I will go first with my least favorite uh, basketball one, and that is... Wait, NBA, MLB, and NFL. NFL. Okay. And my least favorite uh, NBA franchise is 100% the Lakers. Yes. I grew up a Boston Celtics fan. I've always hated the Lakers. The fact that LeBron is there now and I hate him even more than any other player just is a little bit of icing on the cake. I it's funny, Lakers was my choice too, but growing up my brother was a huge Lakers fan. So that makes sense. We play I mean, imagine a video game and he's got Shaq and Kobe and then just a cast of stars on the bench. So yeah, and I was a Cavaliers fan. So they have nothing to do with one another, but it is funnier. It takes the sting out of it because now he hates LeBron and he's on his his team. Right. So it's like you gotta, you get to have that, buddy. But you know, I always had a negative view of Kobe until after he retired, and I started seeing all the like things about what his work ethic was sure. like. And yeah. I was like, oh, I was wrong on that guy. Who? Do you have a least favorite NBA team? I don't know. Like, he I don't, does not have a hot opinion on this one. I don't. Hard, well, I was made fun of a couple <laughs> podcasts ago for having strong emotional and uh, reactions to everything no so <laughs> we wouldn't do that to you <laughs> kidding you, you not only did you only not only made fun of me here my wife listened to that <laughs> and now she has been on me Was about this the it movie thing what did we what no did no, no the movie thing we just didn't like his movie picks uh, i don't remember what it even yeah, was about right. but he's moved on obviously it, it, it was very accurate it's, but <laughs> he seems hurt i'm seems gonna go <laughs> he seems like he would dislike the Miami Heat? Yeah, sure. Mm. That's a no, good, that's an easy one to dislike too, though. So I haven't hardly watched NBA forever. I watch a lot of basketball, but I only I only, like only watch college basketball. So when I last used to watch a lot would have been like nineties. Nice. Really? Okay. So probably be Utah Jazz because I, I loved watching Michael Jordan and I just remember Michael Jordan playing the jazz. jazz is giving and defense, I never defense, I still bad. liked like I liked the jazz. But at the same time, I absolutely hated the Jazz. I, that's I just so funny. Michael to win. Like that era, I was playing NBA Jam the other day. I found myself in an arcade. And it's just like every team just had a couple guys that were like, oh, yeah, I could see getting behind them. Or like their colors were cool. The mascot seemed cooler. The stuff you wore was a lot cooler. Starter brand was very accessible. But then, yeah, just every team wasn't either stacked or filled with players you've never heard. You know what I mean? Everyone had a fighting chance back then, it seemed. 
I also think that was the era of, era of the NBA where the NBA actually invested in making their players superstars. Mm, yeah. I mean, from the, that one draft alone, you had Jordan, oh my Hakeem, God. John Stockton, and Charles Barkley. I mean, there's four. And then that's not even the most all time great stack draft. Mm-hmm. I think like wasn't it like Kobe and like Nash, like a, a bu- bunch of these dudes. Yeah, but once we got access to these guys, oh yeah, it wasn't the same. Like I didn't want to know that Larry Bird used to cheat on his wife, and we didn't find that out till later. <laughs> so it was easy to root for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now with social you know, media, the, do you know Ja Morant is? Ja Morant. Ja Morant. I've heard of the name. So he's an NBA. Superstar, is that fair? Yeah. Superstar who gets suspended for showing a gun on a live stream. Gets suspended from the NBA for showing a gun on a live Once. stream. Was he doing something Twice. stupid with it? Well, then he did it again. <laughs> who cares? It's on a live stream. Well, there's two camps now. There's like, you can be in JJ Reddick's camp. Where I he, would never be in JJ Reddick's camp. Where he camp. says, uh, he, says he did, a, it's legal, right? Right. That's fine. But then Charles Barkley says, well, you can't, you're making millions of dollars on the back of the NBA. You just got to fall in line at a certain point. Oh so. God, I'm on JJ Reddick's side. Yeah. That I, annoys me. <laughs> I agree with that. Should have waited. And so it's like, do what's I'm, legal. But at the same time, there's extreme ramifications if you don't play ball with your, you know, employer. So I'm always going to take the side of second amendment. So, so yeah, some people forget that like professional athletes like that, they're, they're employees. Yeah. They still That's have, great, they still have I mean. to follow an employee handbook, quote unquote. They have. They have to do stuff. They don't just get to do whatever they want. But this guy is That's what off Barkley the clock. Said. That's what Barkley Yeah, it doesn't matter. He's off the clock exercising his you Second Amendment some, right. You do something off the clock and I could... He's it not... Still would have, it could, still could affect us, especially because you are a, uh image of the company. You love everything he's, I do. He's not wrong, though, because there were uh, white players that pose with, you know, big machine guns for Christmas cards. And they're, mm. so they're doing the same thing, but it's looked at wait, wait, in two very different They're getting lights. in trouble, too, or no? No, no, they're not. Yeah, but are you posing or are you brandishing? He was that's brandishing, so, to be fair. Sure, but at the same time, that's a societal difference. That, and it's like, also that camera on a live stream. Well, that's it's not his, like... That's their version of a Christmas card. Right. It's, it, it's not younger, like he was younger people. They, on they, the strip, the yeah. Las Vegas strip with a uh, phone brandishing weapon. It, it was, was in almost, his own home. It was almost showing oh, like well a then, fly on a wall scenario of a of a not an intimate moment, but just two guys hanging out. Yep. It was and and yeah, I don't it once it's out of their hands though, once it's on the internet. I might so. have a new favorite NBA player though. All right, let's go on to major really, league. Baseball. Have you ever seen him play? No, I hear really, really, really good. Really yeah, baseball. Uh, I disliked the Braves growing up. I feel like they got a lot of shine. A lot of kids in my neighborhood, once again, my brother liked them a lot. Overrated on uh, baseball games. I mean, when you have Maddox and Glavin in the bull, like you tell you don't even need a big bat to win, which, and you know, they proved. I mean, of course. And then you got all the Chipper Jones fans. That's how I could tell you're kind of a average uh, uh, 90s baseball player. Who's your favorite player? Oh, I like Chipper Jones. Oh, okay. I know exactly what you're up to, buddy. You don't want to field. You're not going to dig. You're not going to pluck one at first. And you're, you know, you're going to get hit in the face and cry. So Patrick <laughs> loves pigeonholing people off of their pop culture stuff. I love it. What do you got? Uh, Yankees. I hate the no. Yankees. Yeah. Uh, Growing up. Go ahead. I, I, I'm, I hate to say this because I'm pretty sure you're the Boston Red Sox mm-hmm. guy and Yankees, Red Sox. I take Red Sox every time. Oh yeah. But I wish I, I wish I was the other way. Cause I want to, I want to be anti whatever year for, but growing up in the, uh, uh, in New York, being a Red Sox fan, especially around the time I did, when the Yankees started getting good when I was in high school and then dominating for a long time, it's impossible for 
my least favorite team to not be the Yankees. Their fans are so obnoxious. It's like, you didn't do anything. Like you didn't help the Yankees win that pennant. Yep. Calm down. They always drove me nuts. Well, and then you get to the argument that Derek Jeter might be the most overrated player of all time. Yes. Jeter did a lot that didn't show up for in, that city, in the stats. No, he did a lot that didn't show up in the stats, really. Is, yeah. Is what comes I got a to. laundry list full of chicks, those brunettes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, NFL. The Washington Redskins Commanders. <laughs> that can't be your answer. No. Uh, the only reason I say that is because of you. Uh, <laughs> Patriots. Uh, That's a great cool. answer. Because, uh, like, oh, I was, I was, I don't, I don't know how young I was. I was younger when the when the Patriots started winning, and I just they won every everything all the time, and they kept going, and I just hate it. I hated Tom Brady. Yep. Now I look at it and I'm like, Tom Brady was freaking amazing, He's unreal. But still hate the Patriots yep. so much. That's a good one. Yeah, when your team's in the AFC, like mine, is yeah. you just you you hate to see the playoffs on CBS all the time. You're just like, there they are again. Who are they who are they going to beat this time? So are you going Patriots too? No, 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 no. Okay. My as a huge Titans fan, of course, my <laughs> least favorite franchise, not even in just this sport Everywhere. of all time, yeah. is the Houston Texans. Yeah. <laughs> they were the young little brother we used to beat up every time. Their first like five, six years in the league would just like we'd throw it to God knows. Hey, Drew Bennett's down there. You're thinking, who the hell is that? Who the hell is that? Didn't right? matter. It w- doesn't matter. We're, we're we're coming back winning that game. And then all of a sudden they go on this tear and just start winning game. And then Deshaun Watson. Came <laughs> down, and it's like I was like, you know, read straight out of my diary. I don't, you know, like I wish some kind of scandal would happen to and, and there it boom, came. baby. So yeah, they that uh what was it? Like a missed sack or something on the anyways, there was that one playoff game. But uh, yeah, the Texans because and like the most important reason is like get your own team's history. Don't pitch on steal mine. mine. <laughs> Don't. It's the Houston Oilers were the tennis, you know, those Tennessee Titans. So naturally, I hate them and everything they got. So all right, so mine is, and I'm realizing this now, is so chalk. Yeah. Um, but as a Washington fan. It's got to be the Cowboys. Cowboys, there you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then mine are Cowboys, Yankees, and Lakers. We used to make jokes <laughs> about somebody, like if we were in New York and we found out they like the Cowboys, be like, oh, you probably like the Lakers and the- Yeah. Oh, like, just no, no, the, no. You know, That's here too. Is it really? Yeah. My buddy okay. Tyler grew up, uh, he goes, well, I liked Michael Jordan in the 90s, so I liked the Bulls. I was like, okay. So, and then he goes, then I, you know, then the Yankees, when I watched, I was like, okay. So and you, then, yeah. Just like teams that win. Just like teams that win. And KU basketball fan. You know, one of those guys. But I will say a couple of things. One of my favorite football memories of all time was the Texans played their first game ever against the Cowboys and beat them. Yeah. I was so happy about that. But then I would go every year. The Redskins would go play the Cowboys. And when I was down in Dallas, I went every year. Um, I was actually at the game that they were down 13, nothing with like two minutes left. We won by throwing two bomb touchdowns to Santana Moss. So you do it. I got ejected. Um, you got ejected. A little bit right before that. <laughs> so I finally I finally hook up with my friends back at the car and we're driving home. And I'll never forget, Coy Ballinger goes, wait, do you know you won? I was like, no, we didn't. You know, he's like, no, you won. So I was at that game, but I got kicked out before I saw that happen. That's Can you tell us why you got you kicked don't out? Wanna, no. Okay. Um, but I will say this. Every game I ever went to, I had a blast. 
Cowboys fans in Dallas, especially at the stadium, are fun fans. Like they know everything. They know the sport. Yeah. Right. They know their history and they're like generally want to have a good time. So <laughs> Eagles are like one B on that because those fans oh, are terrible. I mean, terrible. The difference terrible. between the two fans is like we could if this was a big podcast, we could make fun of Dallas fans openly and they'd rib back. Right. If we made fun of Philadelphia they'd fans, throw beer bottles. we'd throw, they, yeah, we couldn't get to our cars. <laughs> yep. That's the difference. They booed them. Santa Claus. <laughs> they used to, they used to throw snowballs with batteries inside. No. Them. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> These are all true. When Michael Irvin blew out his knees, they cheered. He was yeah. down on the ground hurt. It's an, not even an unwritten rule. It's common decency. Do not cheer when a player is hurt. They like spent minutes cheering about maybe they thought he was getting up (laughs) no no rooting for him come on (laughs) michael all right that's it we'll see you guys next week wait wait wait. sorry one more we have to check this out i've been staring at it like the whole time you have like a cracker in your usb (laughs) port (laughs) oh that's funny no wonder that doesn't work what is it is it really a cracker it's got to be food of some sort I think it's a piece of uh, almond. What do you got? I was going to use a... Oh, okay. Wait, is it A little bit dirty. What the... I've been doing a lot of outdoor work. What have you been doing with that? Uh, digging in the dirt with it. Oh. Man, well, that's pretty big. Eat it. Gross. Oh, Gross. Oh, oh, oh. Yep. <laughs> it's an almond. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks for checking out the Meat Logistics Podcast. To shop everything but the meat, head on over to Waltons.com. To get your meat processing questions answered by experts and enthusiasts alike, head on over to our online community at MeatGistics.com. Waltons, everything but the meat.